Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Ann Twitty, author of Before Dred Scott, Slavery and Legal Culture and the American Confluence, 1787 to 1857, published by Cambridge University in 2016. Dr. Twitty is Associate Professor of History at the University of Mississippi. Before Dred Scott looks at numerous freedom suits filed in the St. Louis Circuit Court in order to examine the legal culture of slavery and freedom. In this area, known as the American Confluence, a unique legal culture developed characterized by a sophisticated and widespread knowledge of formal law. From enslaved people to slaveholders, Dr. Twitty illustrates the many ways people in this area were deeply enmeshed in law. Dr. Twitty, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so I guess to start everything off, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic in the first place? Sure. Uh, Well, I I have to say, first of all, that I I didn't go to graduate school thinking that I was going to be a a scholar of slavery. I went to graduate school loving the 19th century, knowing that I wanted to work in the 19th century, but thinking that I was going to be a gender scholar. And uh, so I I went to Princeton to work with uh, Christine Stansel. She's excellent, wonderful. And in my second year, uh, I was in a class that she was teaching called uh, Metropolitan History. And she knew that I had a a deep interest in uh, the Midwest. I am a a native Midwesterner. In fact, I'm a native Missourian. And she'd recently come across a database that contained all of these freedom suits that were filed in St. Louis uh, that had been made uh, publicly available, digitized, uh, and and, and put on a website. And she said, hey, you know, I've heard about this project and I I, I think you might be interested in it. And I I started looking at uh, the files that had been digitized and really just fell in love with them Um, and and fell in love with them. Not only I was interested in law, although that wasn't a particular area that I necessarily thought that I would focus on. I fell in love with them because I thought that they were such an amazing resource for understanding uh, the institution of slavery and for understanding enslaved people. Wow, it's a, a interesting way of getting to things. I guess uh, plenty of us in grad school kind of think that we're going into one thing and then end up doing something completely opposite, or so to speak. Yeah, no, I think it. It, it you know, when you look back, I think over a, a career, it, it's it. It's amazing, sort of all the twists and turns and the things that I think you couldn't have anticipated. I mean, I think you know often what what historians uh, tell their students when we're training uh, folks uh, is. To be open-minded and and to go sort of where the evidence takes them, and I think in, in this particular case, uh, you know, it was an instance of sort of me maybe taking that particular set of advice uh, that that I, I found something that that I just wanted to immerse myself in and and wanted to to, to continue thinking uh, and, and 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 learning more about. Um, and so I think you know rather than being sort of dogmatic about uh, this is who I am and this is my identity and this is what I work on, being a little bit more flexible or open certainly certainly worked out for me. Yeah, well, I can certainly appreciate that. I you got a great book out of it, so <laughs> so your book is called, you know, the second part of it is slavery and legal culture in the American confluence. So, what exactly is the American confluence? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it's it's not a term that's in uh, regular circulation. Uh, I have to say that I owe a, a tremendous debt to Stephen Aaron, who wrote a book called The American Confluence uh, several years. Uh, before I did. Uh, so I borrowed this kind of concept. We we define the term a little bit differently. But for me, the American confluence is defined by the meeting point of the three major American uh, waterways. So the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, and the Ohio River. 
um, these these kind of riverine highways uh, that that really define the center part of the North American continent. Uh, and and importantly, in, in in the period that I'm interested in, the late uh, 18th century and the first half of, of the 19th century, this is a, a place where. Uh, there are these important political boundaries uh, that are marked off by these rivers, uh, but people are transversing uh, these these regions, um, this center part uh, of the continent. Um, for me, uh, the the American confluence uh, is made up of you know the present day states of Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri. And by the mid part of the 19th century, um, three of these states will be considered free states. They are states that are carved out of the Northwest Territory, which uh, is a piece of legislation that's passed while the Articles of Confederation uh, are, are, are in force. This piece of legislation, the Northwest Ordinance, passed in 1787 um, and, and basically says that slavery will be prohibited in this Northwest Territory. Later on, these three states uh, that, I, that I say make up a part of the American confluence north of the Ohio River, Ohio, uh, Indiana, and Illinois. Ultimately, those three states will enter the union as free states. They have constitutions that, for the most part, ban the institution of slavery. But then in addition, you know, this region includes places uh, like Kentucky and Missouri. Kentucky enters the union in 1792 as a slave state. Slavery is authorized uh, in, in that portion of the country. And then Missouri, of course, very famously enters the union very contentiously uh, in 1821. Finally, after several years of disagreement, national controversy over whether or not slavery is going to be legally permitted uh, in that particular state. So by the mid part of the 19th century, we think of these two groups of states, Kentucky and Missouri on the one hand and Ohio, Indiana and Illinois on the other hand as uh, contrarily slave and free. But at the very beginning part of my study, these lines aren't so neatly drawn. Uh, there are slaveholders and slaves uh, in, in all parts of the American confluence. Um, slavery and indentured servitude, these two uh, disparate forms of bound labor are prevalent in both. And so I'm trying to make an argument that despite the fact that by the mid-19th century, we think of these two groups of states as diametrically opposed, uh, that, that in an earlier period, that simply wasn't the case, and that in fact, they had a great deal in common with one another. Hmm, that's very interesting. I I know for myself, I wasn't used to thinking about, you know, these states in that kind of framework before reading this book. And I think one of the ways that you um, described it early on as the meeting places for all of these rivers is really interesting, considering the ways in which during this time period, especially before railroads become sort of ubiquitous across the United States, that waterways are kind of the way of traveling fast, of ways of getting your crop to market and all of these things. And so this is kind of a natural place where, you know, this unique culture, as you say in the book, is bound to happen almost. Absolutely. Right. The the the, the rivers uh, in the late 18th century, first half of the 19th century are really the highways uh, of, of the nation. Um, and that's true in, in, in a variety of other places outside of, of this particular uh, region that I'm so interested in. I will say, I think one of the other difficulties is that this is, I would argue, an incredibly important part uh, of the new nation. And yet we haven't really had a, a term um, to apply to this to this region uh, of the country, um, most of the, the the terms that can be used uh, 
often implies something a little bit different. Um, so we haven't really had kind of a neat shorthand. So one of the things I think I was trying to do um, with the book is, is to put, you know, the, kind of the, this idea of the American confluence region uh, on the map, so to speak, right, to, to get people thinking about um, these five states. And, and I'm sure somebody else could argue that, that you could put one or two additional states uh, in this particular region to, to get this kind of terminology in maybe more common usage, to get people thinking about this part uh, of the country again. Yeah, because I think most people, when they think of slavery, they usually think of, you know, the, the quote unquote free north and the slave south. And what your book is really doing is kind of throwing a rich in that and saying, you know, there's this whole part off to the west that is much more ambiguous when you look at it. So what how does slavery operate differently here? Um, why is the American confluence, you know, and make slavery kind of not as concrete as you might see in the East? Well, a big part of it is the tremendous amount of mobility that people have throughout this region. Um, this is a, a time period during which, you know, people aren't just moving to a particular location and staying put for the rest of their lives. Uh, they're, they're constantly in search of better opportunities, uh, of better places to grow crops, um, of, of, of better locations that won't flood quite as frequently. So, people themselves are, are routinely moving across these political boundaries. And these political boundaries do have significance, right? It, it matters whether or not you're north of the Ohio River and, 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 and on free soil in the Northwest Territory or, or purportedly free soil on the Northwest Territory, or whether you're in um, Kentucky or Missouri Territory. So that's part of the explanation, the incredible mobility of people in, in the late uh, 18th century and, and first part of the 19th century uh, in this particular region. I think the other reason that, that uh, slavery looks a little different maybe in the American confluence that it does in some other locations is that this part of the North American continent changes hands so frequently um, over the course of the, the, the late uh, 18th century. You know, Missouri in particular um, goes from being a, a French possession to being a Spanish possession to being a French possession again. And finally, of course, it's purchased by the Americans in 1803. So that kind of juridical confusion um, and, and different types of legal orders and legal regimes, um, you know, setting up uh, uh, stakes in, 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 in a particular region and then leaving um, and, and, and then creating kind of a vacuum for the next imperial power uh, to, to seize the reins. That creates, I think, sort of a, a more complicated situation. Um, you know, I think it's also important to, to note that despite this piece of legislation, the Northwest Ordinance being adopted in 1787, saying there shouldn't really be slavery in this portion of the North American continent, the reality was that slavery had existed for centuries before the Northwest Ordinance is adopted. So, you know, the the, the founders uh, sitting sitting uh, on the eastern seaboard kind of make this proclamation, um, but reality defies it, or or it is defied by reality. Right? They're 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 essentially trying to sort of project upon the Northwest Territory this free status that it that it doesn't already possess. Um, there are already many um, French inhabitants uh, who have who have held slaves for a long period of time. Some of the slaves uh, that these um, native uh, French speakers um, ha have been holding are, are Native American. Some of them are African and been imported um, to portions of the American confluence. So slavery is active 
actively being practiced long before Americans get their mitts on this portion of the North American continent. And then there's right an attempt to sort of impose a free status on on a, a part of the continent that had not historically been free. And I think for me, thinking about it that way is is so interesting because people who are somewhat familiar with slavery and the uh, kind of development it has in the country might be familiar with the ways in which Louisiana is somewhat different than the rest of the Deep South because of the way it uh, would change hands between certain colonial powers. But we don't really think of the, you know, the old Northwest and the the, um, Midwest as being that in that kind of camp, but it is. Um, And I find it really interesting the ways in which that deeply uh, influences the development of American slavery. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, 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 I, I think, you know, Louisiana has gotten a lot more attention in, in part because uh, New Orleans becomes so influential early on. It, it, it's a lot more heavily populated uh, from, from an earlier period. And Louisiana continues to have, for instance, uh, a civil code that's influenced by uh, French control of Louisiana for a long period of time. And, and, and they maintain a civil code uh, for much of the 19th century. You don't get quite the same story a little bit further north uh, in in Missouri, but there are kind of echoes. There are, you know, and, and I don't think that it's it's necessarily um, uh, 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 a random coincidence that you find a tremendous number of these freedom suits in St. Louis. We think it's one of the largest collections of, of freedom suits uh, in North America. Uh, and, and, and the other sort of city that has a, a tremendous number of freedom suits being produced is, is New Orleans. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why this happens to be the case. And, and, and again, is related to um, not only the doctrine that, that is ultimately adopted by the respective state Supreme Courts um, in, in Missouri and Louisiana, but reflected by this, this, this rivering culture, uh, this, this culture of mobility where people are constantly traveling, you know, up and down uh, the Mississippi River, but also, you know, in Missouri, they're, they're, they're arriving um, uh, in Missouri from the Ohio River. Uh, and, and so again, this, this kind of culture of mobility that is so present um, in Missouri, also present in, in New Orleans and, and produces some, some tremendous similarities. And so speaking of the freedom suits um, that you look at in the book, how do enslaved people go about suing for their freedom? How you you make the point that these people have a very deep knowledge of the law. And so how do they develop this? Well, one of the arguments that um, that I think is, is, is something that became really important to me over the course of writing the book, uh, is, is thinking about the ways that, that marginalized people generally, uh, approach the law and, and the kind of proximity that, that, that people, um, who, you know, otherwise don't have access to power, uh, maybe relatively impoverished, um, are oppressed for a variety of other reasons, you know, related to, to race and, and, and gender, how in some ways they have even more of an incentive to learn the law and to understand sort of the finer points of the law uh, than, you know, somebody who today we, we consider to be distinctly middle class, right? Um, and, you know, if, if, if you are living truly sort of on the margins, you have a real vested interest in, in knowing um, what you can and can't get away with, what what you can and can't be prosecuted for, um, what the letter of the law actually is. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, if you want to make a, a kind of contemporary analogy to it, 
you think about, um, you know, somebody who is really living paycheck to paycheck and they worry about making their rent payment uh, every single month. You know, there's a real incentive for somebody like that to know exactly what eviction law is, when they can be evicted, how many days they they can continue living in a place without having been able to, to make their rent, right? That's just kind of one example. And I think enslaved people for many of the same reasons, because their entire existence is defined by the fact that they have this legal status as as. Uh, as slaves, as you know, in, in some places chattel slaves, in most places chattel slaves, in, in other in other cases as as forms of um, of, of real property uh, that that can't be moved. But regardless, they have this legal identity, and this legal identity is incredibly influential in shaping the courses of their lives. So they have, uh, you know, every reason in the world uh, to be as well versed as possible about what the law does and doesn't do about, you know, the, 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 the few instances in which the law might offer them some form of redress. And additionally, you know, you add to that the fact that slaveholders, too, have have a vested interest in, in, in knowing what the letter of the law is, exactly what they can get away with, um, and, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, racist ideology that leads them to believe that black people maybe can't understand uh, the finer points of the law. So you get instances of slaveholders talking amongst themselves about how the law works and, and, and slaves being privy to those conversations and picking up that information and then using it to achieve or accomplish their own goals. Uh, you get examples of enslaved people talking to one another. In fact, one of one of my my favorite pieces of evidence doesn't actually come from a freedom suit itself. It comes from a newspaper article, and it's a newspaper article in which uh, somebody is writing in to complain about how many freedom suits there are. And this particular correspondent to this antebellum newspaper describes how this legal information is transmitted from slave to slave. And, and it's basically an article that's, that's, that's describing a kind of grapevine telegraph, a, a process by which, you know, one enslaved person has some information and they tell everybody that they know. And those people tell some other people and they use the information that they've gotten and they combine it with information that comes maybe from other sources. And, and collectively what they're doing is creating this information uh, within a sort of broader sort of black community um, that those who are fortunate enough to have lived under circumstances that could form the basis for a freedom suit might be able to take advantage um, of the portion of the law that allows them to sue for their freedom if if they can argue that they've been illegally enslaved. And I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, that the people who are on the margins are, as you said, have such a vested interest in knowing what the law is around them um, and how they need to be able to take advantage of it if need be. And so going a little bit further into what you talk about, how do enslaved people bring these suits? Who are they seeking out to help them? Uh, what sort of uh, lawyers are they talking to? Who's helping them? Sure. I think this is a great question. It, it's a bit of a, a, a difficult question to provide uh, concrete answers to because, because there are a variety of different paths that enslaved people can take uh, to suing. Unlike um, all other uh, forms of, of, of civil litigation, uh, a freedom suit doesn't begin with uh, a plea. Instead, uh, a, a, a freedom suit begins with um, something called a petition. You begin by petitioning the court. 
and a petition to the court can begin um, either sort of on the slave's own behalf, the slave appears um, in, in the court, or I, th- I think more likely in, in the context of the St. Louis freedom suits, um, an enslaved individual has approached a uh, justice of the peace, uh, and that justice of the peace has written up a petition, and then that petition can be submitted to the court. Uh, in other cases, rather than than uh, approaching uh, a justice of the peace, maybe you go ahead and consult an attorney from the get-go. Now, interestingly, the way that Missouri law is written, um, slaves aren't supposed to be responsible for identifying their own attorneys. The way that the law is written suggests that the court will appoint lawyers for individuals who are seeking redress through these freedom suit statutes, right? They will they will enter their petition to the court, and once that petition uh, is is granted, then the court will assign an attorney. But what you find when you actually take a closer look at uh, the the documents that make up these freedom suits is many of the petitions are in lawyers' handwriting. So we know that the the, the lawyers had to be engaged before the court ever received uh, or accepted those particular petitions. And and that is evidence that these enslaved people are are seeking out their own legal representation. They're not sitting back and waiting for the court to select someone for them. They're instead taking a proactive role in identifying somebody who they think is going to be a zealous advocate for them. And of course, then that raises all of these questions about how one figures out who's going to be a zealous advocate uh, in, in prosecuting a freedom suit. You know, who's going to be a good attorney as opposed to, um, you know, whoever it is who happens to be in the court that day who the judge assigns to your case. You don't, you don't want to take those kinds of chances. You want to make sure that you've identified high quality representation. And it, there is quite a bit of evidence that a number of uh, the freedom suit plaintiffs in St. Louis really do take this role upon themselves. But I, I do want to also stress that the lawyers who take up these cases, um, generally speaking, they are not abolitionists in the traditional sense of the word. They are not egalitarians. Uh, they don't seem to really be particularly active in, in anything that we would consider to be sort of an abolitionist uh, network or society. They're not involved in sort of religious uh, anti-slavery uh, for the most part, although some of them are religious. A handful of them are involved in the American Colonization Society, which, you know, we might perhaps consider to be a sort of a more conservative form of, of anti-slavery, a, in many ways, a deeply racist form of, of, of anti-slavery, but a form of anti-slavery nevertheless. But that's about as radical, generally speaking, as, as these attorneys get. For the most part, these attorneys, I would argue, are taking on these cases um, because these enslaved plaintiffs represent good clients, uh, paying clients. Again, the Missouri State statute suggests that, that, that these enslaved plaintiffs aren't supposed to be paying to prosecute their cases, but there's all kinds of evidence that, in fact, they did pay their attorneys for the services that those attorneys rendered. So sometimes I think these attorneys are, are taking these cases simply because you know they need to keep their, their firm open and they need uh, every bit of business they can, they can possibly lay hands on. Sometimes I think that, that you know, these lawyers are, are taking these cases because they believe that the law ought to provide some kind of protection for those who the court would deem illegally enslaved, right? That there ought to be people who could be legally enslaved, and then there are people who are illegally enslaved. And there ought to be sort of a distinction between those two forms uh, of enslavement. And, and again, I think that suggests how not radical as a whole, these these attorneys are. Um, 
one last thing that I think really distinguishes attorneys in, in St. Louis is that many of them go on to be extraordinarily prominent in not just Missouri politics, but in some cases, uh, national politics. So you have, for instance, Edward Bates, who becomes attorney general under Abraham Lincoln. He represents a number of these freedom suit plaintiffs in St. Louis. Uh, you have a number of other sort of really centrally sort of important uh, political figures. So the, these are not sort of fringe characters. They are not, you know, the 19th century equivalents of, of kind of ambulance chasers. Uh, they are, in fact, you know, really well-respected members of the Missouri bar um, and, and folks who have an eye on kind of climbing the political ladder. And I find your attention to the motives of these lawyers to be so interesting in the book and pointing out that for one thing, most of them are not, as you just said, any sort of radical abolitionist. And even though they're not, they're probably still taking this because they have this belief in the law. The law says that slavery is legal. Some people can be enslaved, but by its very definition, some people shouldn't be enslaved, that they there can be illegal slavery, and that by upholding someone's freedom, they are, in essence, also upholding the enslavement of other people. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I think that, that you know, there, there are different ways to sort of interpret the meaning of, of freedom suits. Obviously, freedom suits provide an avenue uh, to freedom for many in, enslaved people. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of enslaved people in the United States and, and certainly in Missouri or even in St. Louis, um, they don't have the grounds upon which they could base a freedom suit. They're not ever going to be able to take advantage of these freedom suit statutes that exist. So in, in, in some ways, right, these freedom suit statutes and attorneys' willingness to prosecute freedom suits um, is a kind of safety valve, if you will. It's a sort of protection for the institution of slavery as a whole by ensuring that there are a very small number of enslaved people who can take advantage of these freedom suit statutes and obtain their freedom you are in fact protecting the legitimacy of the overarching system. Uh, that's certainly one interpretation. I think that's probably the interpretation that I, I uh, find most uh, appealing uh, in, in terms of sort of trying to understand, you know, how these attorneys thought about what it was they were doing. Many of these attorneys are slaveholders in their own right. So how is it that they come to represent these freedom suit plaintiffs? Who is it that they think these folks are, and why is it that these these folks are uniquely deserving of freedom when sometimes their own slaves, you know, certainly haven't been set free. When 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 certainly these attorneys don't seem to have any qualms about the institution sort of as a whole or the institution writ large. And your other point about how these lawyers are sometimes probably just taking these just to keep their doors open is pretty interesting because of. You know, we're not used to thinking of enslaved people as property holders, as people who have, you know, the the amount of money it might take to pay a lawyer to actually prosecute something on their behalf. And yet, as you as you said, and as you point out in the point pointed out in the book, you know, these people are actually, you know, actively trying to pay lawyers so that they can get the best representation that they can possibly get. That's absolutely true. And and I think, you know, one of the the the, the recent sort of revelations, maybe led by uh, Dylan Penningroth's excellent claims of kinfolk, right, is that is that people who were considered property, in fact, actually were able to own property in their own right, even though by law, 
they shouldn't have been able to, right? But they were able to lay claim to this property and, and to accumulate money in some cases. We know from not only uh, Dylan's tremendous work, but but other folks who've worked on uh, urban slavery that, that urban slaves often had more access to uh, cash money uh, and more opportunities to to earn the kind of money that, it, that that one would need to sort of prosecute one's case. So, you know, that's kind of another example of of St. Louis sort of being a perfect storm. Um, there, there is all this mobility. There are um, enslaved people who are hired out for long periods of time, and sometimes they don't even see their master for um, years uh, at a time. Um, they have these opportunities to, to make money, to, to prosecute a, a case. Um, and I, I and, and I think too, thinking about sort of the, the the money end of it from the attorney's perspective, you know, I, I think we we imagine that 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 somebody who would, for instance, go on to be attorney general of the United States wouldn't need to take on these what we might otherwise think of kind of like piddling little cases. Um, but you know, this is a day and age before there is kind of a, a, a corporate uh, retainer. There aren't attorneys who you know are, are in big firms that do sort of incredible volume business with a single client. And, you know, they, they, they exist on a kind of frontier basis. They need to make their, their name in a variety of different ways. And they need every single client who walks through the door. So you don't want to turn away um, an enslaved client um, who's coming to you to prosecute one of these freedom suits because it's yet another opportunity to earn a few bucks here and there. Yeah, I mean it's 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 all just kind of fascinating the way all of these different worlds converge um in this place that is the literal convergence of separate different worlds um the American confluence. But you you speak about you just spoke about uh people enslaved people you know not seeing their their um the people who are owning them for so long because they might be out uh, working somewhere. And so in one of your chapters, you kind of focus on this about working for freedom. And what does this mean for you? Because you make the point that in, in many cases, the history of emancipation and manumission usually looks at like that one act, like once the kind of ink is dried on the paper, the person's free. And that's, that's the kind of moment that matters. But you, you say that in many cases, people in the American confluence, enslaved people here, are working towards that moment. So, what does that look like for you? Well, I think what I wanted to capture uh, in in that particular chapter uh, is the ways in which sort of you know f- actually filing a freedom suit is often the culmination of, of many many years, sometimes decades. Uh, worth of experience um, and, 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 and learning, right? I mean, I, so so often, um, you know, enslaved people have spent years, again, accumulating money that they might need to prosecute a suit. They spent years learning about the law and learning about the different uh, bases for freedom suits. Uh, they've spent an incredible amount of time trying to figure out, you know, which white people might be able to offer testimony on, on their behalf to substantiate whatever claim that they might make. They've, they've taken years kind of weighing um, the different options that are laid out before them. Um, you know, one of the, one of the ways in which you might uh, obtain your freedom is, is by filing a freedom suit, but another way in which you might obtain your freedom is by threatening to file a, a freedom suit, right? You might use it as, as, as a kind of bargaining chip or a kind of bargaining tool. Um, because once your master knows essentially that, you know, that you could walk into a, a circuit court and, and file a suit, 
all of a sudden you have more power than you previously had in that relationship. Um, and I think what you see in the particular chapter uh, that, that, that talks about working one's freedom uh, is is the story of a, a man named Vincent, who I, I find absolutely fascinating. Um, he's somebody who spends years being hired out. His, his master lives in Kentucky, and he himself uh, seems to be from Kentucky. And and he's hired out to work at, at the salines or salt works uh, in, in southeastern Illinois for a long period of time. And over this period of time that he spends in southeastern Illinois, he increasingly gains more autonomy, more control for himself, such that eventually when his master's son's come to claim him to try to get him to come back to Kentucky, he basically kind of refuses to do it. And and he uses all this kind of chicanery to get out of, and he makes promises to them. No, 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 I'll be, I'll be, I'll be back in another week or another two weeks or a month. He starts running his own business. He starts, you know, creating salt in his own right and, and selling it, uh, working alongside another uh, seemingly free black man. So it kind of sets up his own business. Uh, and, and then eventually he, he is transported to St. Louis. And I, my argument is that, you know, having had the opportunity to gain a bit more control over his own life circumstances, that became more and more kind of intoxicating over time. He got more and more used to sort of asserting himself, especially vis-a-vis his master and his master's sons. His master passes away and, and, and the sons proceed to fight uh, over not only Vincent, but a number of other enslaves that they inherited as well. And it's and it's kind of, you know kind of at this this final juncture when when Vincent is is finally dragged away from the life he's kind of created for himself in southeastern Illinois to St. Louis, where he finally files suit. You know, and and like I said, this is the culmination of of many many years of kind of struggle and negotiation. Um, and I I think you know the the St. Louis Freedom Suit case files really bear out this process for lot of individuals that, that there isn't, you know, there, it isn't as if a, a flip gets switched. You know, they, they didn't know that you could file a freedom suit. They learned that you can file a freedom suit and all of a sudden they file one and, and, and they either are, are successful or are unsuccessful at the end. Instead, what, what you often see is, you know, long periods of time passing between um, an enslaved person making their way to St. Louis and actually deciding to file suit. And, and there is definitely the suggestion in many of these case files that the precipitating factor is the threat to the family life that they've created. Um, the woman who, who, who spends the most amount of time in St. Louis with the grounds to sue, who doesn't file suit, she, she takes many decades before she finally files suit in the St. Louis Circuit Court. Certainly, there's a suggestion in her case file that that what ultimately pushes her to take this you know, formal course of legal action is, is threats to her family. She's had a number of children. She has grandchildren. She is worried about being removed from the city and being removed from her family. And she's worried about her children or her grandchildren being removed from the city, about her family being broken up. And that's that's, I mean, in her particular case, that's the the the, the match that 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 essentially um, lights this the spark that becomes not only her case but but the cases of of several of of her children. So that too, you know, I think suggests that freedom is this real process that that it isn't something uh, that I think enslaved people come to uh, lightly. The decision to to file one of these freedom suits is it, it's fraught with all kinds of, of of risk and danger and the possibility of retribution. Um, and so you have to be absolutely sure that you kind of exhausted every other possibility, um, before I think you're kind of willing to take 
these risks. And I would also suggest that I think that that's really evocative of a worldview that is very foreign from our own worldview, right? I, I think, you know, today, I think we all like to think that, that we do anything to protect our freedom. You know, this was a world in which uh, Black people certainly didn't have equality, even if, if they were free. Um, almost all Black people worked in uh, decidedly subordinate positions to white people, whether they were enslaved or they were indentured or whether they were free Black people, but they were basically confined to a handful of kind of degraded occupations. This was not a, a world in which I think Black people had, you know, the kind of expansive horizons uh, that, that we hope, you know, all Americans, I think, have today. This was instead a world in which I think you could very easily, as an enslaved person, look around and think, well, I've made it to St. Louis and my family is intact in St. Louis and maybe I, I get the opportunity to make a little bit of money on the side and, and I'm able to purchase some some small luxuries for myself and my family. And, and you think, you know, I have a pretty good thing going here. I'm not going to risk my current situation. I'm not going to attempt to achieve the perfect um, and, 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 and forego the good that I really have. It's when the good, I think, is, is threatened that you often see these enslaved people, you know, willing to put it all on the line uh, and, and, and prosecute these, these freedom suits, but not until then. And, and I think that tells us something about how different uh, their worldview, their understanding of kind of what their life opportunities were than the ones that we as sort of modern, liberal, 21st century beings might imagine or, or might think of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to, to think of it that way in that, you, you know, it's, it's something that is not, say, natural to come to in a world where, you know, you're literally enslaved to someone else, you know, as you mentioned in the, in just now and in the book, you know, bringing a freedom suit, if you lost, there's the real threat of retribution. Even if you bring the freedom suit and you have a really good case, you're the people, the person or people who are enslaving you might take uh, extra legal matters to sell you further south, which is for many enslaved people, um, you know, the ultimate punishment and possibly a death sentence in its own right. And so making these difficult decisions over, as you've pointed out, decades of either building, you know, your own kind of personal wealth or, you know, building the networks that you need. It's something that takes a lot of energy and time. And it's something that you really have to think about, not only for yourself, but for the family, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's there's been so much great recent work uh, about, uh, you know, the importance of family and familial networks for enslaved people. And I, I, I think the, the St. Louis Freedom Suits um, really bear that out. Yeah. And so to kind of go towards what the book, I guess, might be building towards or might not, but, you know, it's in the title, Dred Scott. How does your work help us to understand what might be arguably, you know, the most famous slave case uh, in American history that most people are probably familiar with coming into reading this book? Well, I think for me, what, one of the, the one of the biggest takeaways uh, is that, you know, to read the Dred Scott decision, not that I, I think many people read it uh, from from beginning to end. It's, it's a relatively long decision uh, and, and there are many uh, dissents. Um, to, to read the Dred Scott decision, to read Roger Tawney's decision, um, 
you you would get a very misleading idea about Dred Scott the Man. You get a very misleading idea about freedom suits. The suggestion in the Dred Scott decision is Dred Scott is utterly exceptional. There's no one like him. This is the only time we've ever seen a case like this, which, you know, Roger Taney damn well knew wasn't wasn't the case wasn't wasn't true. Um, Roger Taney had 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 presided over a, a couple of other freedom suits that had made their way to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, there were a number of state Supreme Courts uh, that that handed down decisions in freedom suits, in addition to obviously the Missouri Supreme Court, which I'm I'm, I'm most familiar with. Um, but but you would certainly get the sense that as as Roger Taney famously proclaims, you know, the black man had no rights that the white man was bound to respect, and as if um, freedom suits were an impossibility uh, had had never really existed at all. And and I think what he's doing there, I mean, in addition to engaging in some really lousy history uh, and 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 intentionally sort of mis- misleading um, the public, he's speaking with such incredible authority. Uh, about the topic that I that I think if you know if your first exposure to um, the Dred Scott case is reading the Dred Scott case, uh, it, it's not you know reading about freedom suits. It's not even necessarily reading about Roger Taney, sort of more generally, um, or it's reading about the reaction to the case. I think if, you, if 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 that was where you were to go to, you would think that 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 there simply wasn't any anything any precedent. To the Dred Scott uh, uh, case and, and and to the experience that that the Dred Scott's case speaks to, uh, and in fact, you know what, what you find certainly in the St. Louis freedom suits is an incredible wealth of of these experiences and often extraordinarily similar experiences. And, and in fact, you know, one of the things that I end up arguing is there's actually nothing at all exceptional about Dred Scott the man in, in terms of sort of his experience. His experience is replicated hundreds of thousands of times. Um, so it, it, it's, it's happenstance that, that we, that we, that we associate, um, everything with this particular man and this particular suit, given, uh, the huge number of cases that, that actually exist. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to be able to kind of put Dred Scott in perspective in that, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's, it's only as famous as it is simply because it made it to the Supreme Court and because Roger Taney wanted to make, you know, such a big deal about it and try and use it as the case to end the slavery question. But as you point out, you know, Dred Scott, there's been hundreds, if not thousands of other Dred Scots out there before him trying to do exactly what he was doing. Absolutely. And and I will also say that that you know, Dred Scott, when he initially files suit in the St. Louis Circuit Court, because he files suit in, in, in the St. Louis Circuit Court first, and, and that case works its way through the Missouri Supreme Court before he files in uh, federal court, uh, and, and it's the federal case that, that ultimately makes its way to the Supreme Court. When he first files suit in the latter half of the 1840s, Dred Scott the man should have had every expectation that that he was going to win his case based on everything that had happened uh, in Missouri up until that point, based on the precedent that had been handed down by the Missouri Supreme Court and other freedom suits. So, you know, y- you have to imagine sort of this moment in which Dred Scott approaches an attorney and, and describes, you know, the facts of his case. And you have to imagine that the legal advice he gets is, oh, you know, th- this case is going to be essentially a slam dunk. Th- th- there's no unique information here in your freedom suit that the Missouri Supreme Court hasn't already seen before, that the St. Louis Circuit Court hasn't seen before. And in fact, 
Dred Scott does win his circuit court case. Um, it's the Missouri Supreme Court that overturns it. Uh, because the makeup of the Missouri Supreme Court has changed, uh, because it no longer has Supreme Court justices who are favorably uh, disposed uh, towards, you know, handing down these kind of emancipatory precedents or upholding, in this case, emancipatory precedents uh, that that the court had decided decades prior. So, so I think that too, you know, is about recovering kind of the contingency of that moment and thinking about, you know, being Dred Scott and filing this first freedom suit. And having, you know, the incredible misfortune uh, of, of filing at, you know, at this exact moment when um, the, the the makeup of the Missouri Supreme Court has has changed. And, and then, you know, slightly later, by the time the case makes it to uh, the United States Supreme Court, when when the court has has, you know, decided that it's going to attempt to settle the slavery question on the backs of a single suit yours. So so I think there's, you know, there's absolutely no reason to believe um, that that Dred Scott's case is going to become what it becomes, and and I think that's very different from a lot of other Supreme Court cases. You know, there's a lot of Supreme Court cases that are that are created because they think that the case will be attractive to the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court it will be irresistible to the Supreme Court. And this is you know this is an instance in which I don't think anybody could have predicted um, that that that's ultimately where this case uh, would would end up. It's not as if it's a, a brilliantly designed challenge. Uh, that 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 is that is laid before Roger Taney for the purpose of 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 him handing down you know tremendously controversial decision. Yeah, and then as other people's work has shown, you know, Dred Scott itself, even in its time, wasn't exactly adhered to by everyone. It was kind of just ignored by outright by some states and and everything else. And then, as you mentioned earlier, with some of uh, with Edward Bates, who's representing people on the ground uh, in this area eventually becomes the attorney general. And then he's asked to, like, give an opinion on Tawny's opinion in the court. And so you, you have this situation where all these people are kind of connected through this uh, interconnected space of the American confluence. And it all kind of comes full circle um, by the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think to finish off the interview, uh, could you tell our listeners what might have been, say, your most interesting find with this? Since there's so many cases that you had access to, did you have one or two that were just kind of like really stood out to you? Well, I have to say one of the biggest surprises in working with these cases, and and I think the reason that I really fell in love with the cases uh, is because they provide a window onto the experiences of uh, enslaved people and the experiences of, of slaveholders um, that you know we just don't we just don't have enough of um, for you know those of us who work on uh, American slavery um, and are specifically interested in the enslaved experience you know we we know that the that the number of, of sources we have is is incredibly limited almost all of those sources are very heavily mediated by uh, white people. Um, there are methodological challenges related to just about every kind of source we can, we can lay our, our hands on in a lot of ways. Certainly the freedom suits are, are not, not an exception, um, here to that, that general rule, but, but they do offer, um, an opportunity to hear kind of the life stories of, of a large number of, of enslaved people and their relationships to not only their, their masters, but to other enslaved people, to their families, to, um, 
white people who may be sympathetic to their cause. Um, it, it, it provides that kind of glimpse into their lives that I, that I think is, 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 is all, unfortunately all too, all too rare. And I will also say sometimes they're, they're downright, uh, uh, comical. They're, they're, in the way that that you know, uh, truth can be stranger than fiction. Um, I, you know, some of the stories that 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 manage to make their way into one of these freedom suits. Um, you know, they they have real flesh and blood people doing real things, and sometimes kind of wacky or zany things, very human things. Uh, and I, so I think from from a from the standpoint of somebody who's, who's interested in just humanistic study uh, writ large they can be really fascinating and rewarding to read. Uh, and in, in terms of, of, of sort of the, 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 uh, my favorite finding, maybe the, the, the finding that, that I came back to again and again, so much so that I uh, ended up um, opening the book with, with this particular vignette was the story of uh, Vincent, a, a man that I, that I've already spoken a little bit about. Um, and two of the men who had been uh, claiming him and, and the kind of uh, bizarre scene that breaks out on on the banks of the Mississippi River. So obviously, river culture is is, is incredibly important to this book. Uh, and what you wind up with is is this scene whereby a slaveholder has has paddled out into the middle of the Mississippi River because he's convinced that the sheriff is about to show up and take him into custody. And he's convinced that the sheriff is about to take him into custody because. Uh, he, he either hasn't been showing up for proceedings related to a freedom suit that's been filed against him, uh, or he, he hasn't allowed uh, Vincent to meet with his attorney or to attend court proceedings. And so, you know, he, he paddles out to the Mississippi thinking that, you know, the Mississippi River lays beyond the jurisdiction of, of the, the sheriff of, of St. Louis County. And it is, it, 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 it is an absolutely sort of comedic tale that I think gets at the heart of people's idea about the law and how the law worked. And, and some of those ideas are based very much on the letter of the law or based on what, you know, I routinely in the book refer to as formal law. And others are based on kind of just these kind of ideas that are, that are developed um, based on uh, things that they overhear, based on sort of notions that they, that they might have about what is right or wrong or about how something should or shouldn't work. Uh, that they then incorporate um, into their everyday lives, and they and they use this sort of knowledge, this sort of information, to sort of structure their behavior. So here's the scene in which you know you have you have this this man who's who's, who's sitting in a, a canoe in the middle of the Mississippi River, and the sheriff shows up, and then another man sh- appears uh, on the banks uh, of the river, and, and Vincent is there. Vincent's being guarded uh, by by this man uh, with with a knife, so that he can't. He can't escape, and and, um, and and this it's this weird sort of motley crew that has to sort of work out, you know, how to resolve this very particular situation, and and, and it's you know this 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 uh, sheriff's agent who's who's standing on on the banks who 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 has to say, um, you know, there's there's no danger in you coming to shore. I'm not going to take you into custody. I'm not going to arrest you. Uh, and 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 eventually, um, this particular slaveholder decides that that he's going to paddle on in. And everything's going to be okay. Um, and 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 I, I love this story for how human it is. I think how funny it is. Um, you know, slavery obviously is not it's not a topic um, where it, you often um, get these sort of more lighthearted moments. But I think occasionally you get these glimpses of people in 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 their full richness and their full in their full humanity. Um, and and I think that that has been for me 
probably the single most rewarding thing about working with these freedom suits is, 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 is the very sort of humanness that they, that they attest to. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly, I remember reading that and thinking that that was oddly funny for something dealing with, you know, a man's enslavement, but just thinking about, you know, someone we're used to probably thinking about people who enslave others as kind of like all powerful people who have, you know, all this sway over all the people that they enslave. And yet you, you have someone trying to run away from a sheriff in a paddle boat on the Mississippi. And how can you not just look at that and think, okay, this is somewhat funny for the situation that we're in here. Well, I think it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's absolutely sort of suggestive of, of I think, the power dynamics that exist uh, in, in this part of the country um, where enslaved people like Vincent have attained as much autonomy as they have. They've attained as much knowledge about the law as they have. And they have these um, freedom suit statutes that they can, you know, manipulate to sort of suit their own ends. And, you know, this is definitely sort of a, an, an instance in which um, y- you think about a, a slaveholder, a master as, 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 as holding all the power, um, or certainly the lion's share of power. And, and what you really find here is that Vincent has, has managed to level the playing field to a remarkable degree. He, he certainly doesn't have the upper hand. But he shows himself to be, you know, incredibly savvy at manipulating um, his master and his master's sons into into essentially doing his own bidding. And I think there's lots of examples or instances um, of that. And and I think that 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 in and of itself, you know, is a reflection of the way slavery works in the American confluence, where you can routinely slip across. Um, you know, to the other side of a, a river and, and you could be on, you know, supposedly free soil in, in, in one moment and an hour later, you could be on supposedly slave soil and, and no one may be able to pinpoint your actual status um, for absolute certain. So there, there, there's, there's a tremendous amount of sort of confusion. And I think this confusion presents some real opportunities for enslaved people um, to, you know, sometimes best or, or get the better of uh, their masters. Yeah, it's something to say that, you know, Vincent in that scenario is able to sort of flip the power dynamics and have where we're usually thinking um, or used to thinking of enslaved people as running away, have his one of his slaveholders uh, running away from the law. Absolutely. And so I guess one more question. Um, what can our listeners expect from you in the future after they have gone out and read and hopefully buy your book? Um, what can we expect from you in the future? What's your what are you working on right now? Well, I'm particularly interested in thinking more about the kind of long end of slavery in this purportedly free north. So in some ways, it is an extension of uh, the first project. Uh, in other ways, it, it, it kind of takes on new dimensions. So one of the sites I'm interested in is uh, the Old Northwest, familiar territory, thinking about um, indentured servitude and, and its longevity uh, in, in that particular region uh, and, and trying to identify as many uh, indentured people as I possibly can. Uh, and then the other site that I'm really fascinated uh, with is, is, is sites where these gradual emancipation statutes were adopted. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in um, specifically efforts to circumvent these gradual emancipation laws. Uh, I, I'm curious uh, about how many enslaved people uh, who were entitled to their freedom at some later date as a result of these gradual emancipation statutes, um, 
how many of them were actually sold further south in, in contravention uh, of, of those laws into a lifetime of slavery. I think that's a, a problem that um, historians have long known about, but 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 really haven't attempted to quantify in any real sort of substantive way. So in some ways, kind of a, a return to sort of familiar ground and, and, and getting to, 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 to play in, in the same um, territory and with some of the same records uh, that I looked at the first time and in, and in another way, um, really expanding upon uh, the geographical sort of scope of, of my inquiry by, by moving into the eastern seaboard, moving into New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York uh, in particular, where these gradual emancipation statutes were so important. Well, that certainly sounds very interesting. Um, hopefully, once that's out, we can have you back on the program and talk about that book. Well, I'd love to. Well, um, thank you for having us or for for letting us have you on the program. Um, again, everyone, this is uh, Dr. Ann Twitty, author of Before Dred Scott, Slavery in Legal Culture and the American Confluence, 1787 to 1857. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much. <laughs>